Okay, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Break It Down for Brackens podcast. Today we are brought to you by JustTheFreakingRecipe.com. JustTheFreakingRecipe.com is a blog you can go to to find recipes for interesting, easy to make meals. Um, but there's no backstory, there's no discussing my trip to Tuscany and the family that adopted me into their home and taught me, taught me how to make their secret marinara sauce. No, it's just ingredients, recipe, instructions, maybe some pictures. It's a very simple recipe website. Check it out, justtherecipe.com. We are also brought to you by my company, Bracken's Painting. Bracken's Painting pays for every hobby or business endeavor that I come up with, including this podcast. So thank you, Bracken's Painting, commercial residential painting, servicing Virginia and West Virginia. Bracken's Painting is always hiring, always looking for talented and experienced help. Bracken'sPainting.com. Today we get to talk to Carrie Grossi. Carrie and I served in the Army back in 1997 together, and uh, we worked at Arlington National Cemetery, and he moved into a position of funeral coordinator after leaving the Army, and he's still in the industry today. We discuss what the funeral industry was like before COVID-19, what it is like during COVID, and maybe what the future um, will hold for funerals when you can't gather in large groups. So let's hear what Carrie has to say. Okay, Carrie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you being here. Absolutely, brother. As I probably mentioned in the intro, Carrie and I go back to 1997. We were both in the old guard uh, in the U.S. Army. We served at uh, Arlington National Cemetery, uh, and our primary mission was to uh, perform honors to soldiers who had passed away or retirees who had passed away at Arlington National Cemetery. It's a premier unit to be in, as I'm sure all Army units call themselves premier, but I feel like we were more premier. Um, the old guard is, uh, not only did they handle funeral um, honors services, but also Tomb of Unknown Soldier, the Caisson, the Guns Platoon. Uh, what am I forgetting, Carrie? Uh, Army drill team, the That's colors right. team that uh, travels the the world, really. Right, but uh, but again, Kerry, thanks for being on. I appreciate it. Oh, I love it, man. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate the. It's good catching up with you too. Well, I knew that uh, one of the topics on this planet of the thousands that I don't understand fully is um, funerals and how funerals adjust to an ever changing world, specifically in this coronavirus, COVID nineteen quarantine scenario. I've had. Since quarantine has started, I've had um, three people pass away that were directly in my family. So aunts or uncles, um, my stepfather, he passed away. So, oh, sorry, and then, right? It's it's been it's been tough on the family, but I imagine it's more tough because of being quarantined. So, but I knew that because Carrie jumped into the funeral industry over twenty years ago, right after our time in the old guard, I knew you'd be the person to talk to. So. Let's start off with um, your background. You know, where do you live? What's your background? Tell us whatever you want us to know. 
Sure. Um, heck, I didn't know I was going to get in this industry either. I mean, I currently live in uh, McKinney, Texas. It's a uh, Dallas suburb, a little north of, north of Dallas. The, the growth out here is uh, tremendous. But, you know, I grew up in, in Chicago, south suburbs of Chicago. Um, pretty, pretty real blue collar, you know, family. And um, we didn't have a lot of means to go to college, things like that. So that's how my military story started. You know, I figured, hey, I'm gonna, at 16, I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna go to the army. I went into the delayed entry program, ended up going in at 17 right after high school, um, did basic training, and then uh, ended up in Panama on an airborne unit. Uh, had a, just a blast there, but our unit was closing down. Our, our job out there was to defend the canal um, but things were changing politically and, you know, how they were going to do it. So when they were closing that unit down, old guard recruiters came to Panama. And I didn't, I didn't really what, know. Uh, what year was that? Yeah. That was in 93 um, that I went to Panama. So 93, 94, I was there. And then 94, I ended up in the old guard. But I had orders for Bragg. So you got to remember during peacetime, um, the old guard, um, that unit, um, was above all other units. So when they came down to do recruiting, um, they met with you individually, um, asked you a bunch of questions, and then, you know, I had orders to brag, and then the next thing I had, a week later, I had orders to the old guard. Um, and I actually had to extend um, because they required a three-year tour, and I only signed up for three years. So I did a year in Panama. Um, so best decision I ever made. Um, obviously, I don't know what brag was going to be, but uh, the old guard, uh, was was just amazing. And I, I wish I felt or understood the honor of what we were doing when we were doing it. Being young and immature and just, you know, living life day by day, you don't see it. Then the career path I took showed me so much different. You know, so after, you know, obviously I, I was on firing parties there. Um, so I, I did the majority oh, of them. Oh. I'm sorry. So we got to be very clear when we're breaking these things down. So Firing party is the. Let's break it back even farther for a second, because you're sure. you're dropping you're dropping terms that you and I definitely know in our mm -hmm. regular conversation. But I want to make sure we're clear for anybody who might be listening. And I'm always surprised to hear who's listening. I literally saw my buddy who runs um, maintenance for the town drove by and said, "Heard you on the podcast. It was great." And I'm like, "What do you? I had no idea he was listening." That's awesome. Yeah. So. Um, when you, when you think about the perspective of what the old guard does for funerals and for the honors, whether it's a, what's called a simple honor or a full honors, I actually grew up three miles from Fort Myer. So oh, I wow. kind of came into it already knowing, okay, this is, um, this is the level of respect that happens here. And, but you're right, when you're young, it's hard to grasp the, 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 the level of honor and what kind of an effect it has on the families that are there. Um, but I, I know that my, my, my grandfather was buried there. So I remember that one and those sort of things. So it was, a, it was true honor to be in that. Uh, but pushing back to your time at Panama, what was your job description there? Were you infantry? Yeah, so I was an airborne infantryman. I, went, I mean, I went to basic training at Fort Bend, or Fort Bend, um, Fort Benning, Georgia, and then did airborne school immediately after basic and AIT with advanced infantry training. Um, and then after airborne school, um, I received orders to go to uh, Fort Kobe in Panama. So that was attached to Howard Air Force Base. Um, and we were the last, the, the group of soldiers that went at that point in time. So this would have been mm, November-ish of 93. Um, 
we were the last influx of soldiers to go in because after we got there, they got to full strength and then they started to go down in strength and numbers because they were handing the canal. I believe they handed it off to China. And, um, but our, our primary mission there was to defend the canal. So for instance, um, uh, a Navy ship or a sub, a nuclear sub would come in, we would immediately lock down and then our unit would every single lock, we would go to those locks and then we would position ourselves because um, obviously the subs are exposed at that point, and then we would position ourselves to defend it should it get attacked. There was also, since Panama was right at, at Central America, we had a, a major communications um, port there, towers, things like that. So our units would be based on call, and if your unit was um, set for that particular month, it was your job to defend those communication towers. So. You know, here I am 18 years old and I'm, me and my roommate were um, at this tower's 24-hour shift and your orders were shoot to kill. So you think, now you got to remember we're peacetime. We're not in Afghanistan. We never, you know, no, nothing was happening. So as an 18, you talk about a greater appreciation for these young men and women that go into combat. I can remember how scared I was being on a mountaintop with my buddy with an M16 saying, hey, you got orders shoot to kill. And at one point, two two Panamanian women came up to the gate and we were not um, held to high regard out there. You know, we took um, Noriega in 89, so I'm there at the end of 93, but when we went in in 89, it's not, we didn't go in with a, you know, hey, come on with us. We, we, we did some major damage to a third world country and we didn't fix it back up after we left. So they were happy with getting him out of there, but they were not happy with us being there afterwards. So. There were many areas of the country that were off limits. Um, it, there was some scary times at, at, um, at, at portions of it, but these two women came to um, the fence and it's a, you know, eight, 10 foot fence with, you know, barbed wire, all that stuff. And they started climbing it. Well, there's language barrier. And I'm like, no, 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 Alto, Alto. I'm telling them to stop. And my, my roommate's on the phone with our, you know, squad leader and we're trying to get people to come up here. But ultimately if they crossed the fence, I was gonna have to shoot them. And it was just, you figure now, they're, now I'm, they're two women. So who, who wants to shoot? Well, who wants to shoot anybody? Right. Um, so it was, it was an eye opening experience for me. And thankfully they got the hint, they climbed off the fence and they ran back in the jungle and they were gone. And it was just the most surreal experience for me. I'll never forget it. Um, it was unbelievable to be in that, but we would in training missions, you know, we would jump in to the jungle, you know, our, our drop zone. And then we, you know, then we go on an infantry training mission and we'd be, you know, going through the jungle on trails and we'd come into a, a, an opening that had grass hut villages. So, I, you know, I grew up poor, what I felt poor, you know, we'd be on food stamps sometimes, you'd go to the church and get your, you know, powdered milk and box cheese and all that stuff, you know, and, and that was the moment that I'm like, you know what, I didn't grow up poor. I had running water, I had a roof over my head, and these folks are literally living in grass huts. It was like I was watching a National Geographic show in real life. Um, what an amazing perspective that gave me on life at, 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 at a young 18 years old. It was, it was just, it was awesome, man. It was really cool. That, that is pretty darn amazing. So then fast forward, you got your, your, I remember when I was in basic, I went to the old guard out of basic, but I, um, I had orders to, I think, Fort Lewis or Fort Campbell or something. Right. And uh, in basic, we found a way to sneak into the drill sergeant's office. You could check the folders to see when the orders came in. <laughs> so then we, we, we leaked it to everybody that six of us had gotten into the old guard and that we were changing up and going to 
Arlington, which I was stoked because I lived there. Now you mentioned we also, um, we were both in the same platoon, which was a uh, firing party, which for those who don't know, that is we performed the 21 gun salute, which is three volleys, three, uh, three shots of seven rounds. And I totally can't remember why the number 21 is important or the number of seven rounds. Do you know why? Uh, I did at one point, but that's yeah. the same thing that the, the um, Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers do. They'll do 21 steps, uh, 21 volleys for the president when they die. Um, I, actually, I'm embarrassed not to be able, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I think it has something to do with uh, ships. When ships would come into port, it had to do with how many rounds they could shoot off of at some point. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to follow up with this on another podcast. I'm, I'm looking to offer trivia at the end of my podcast. Oh, yeah. that I got <laughs> answered after the fact. So. Um, so we were talking about the services that we provided at, uh, at Arlington, um, and then how that kind of sprung you into uh, being a, uh, a funeral director and uh, a licensed mortician and embalmer. So let's, let's, let's head down that road now. Sure. Um, so in the service, as you know, we, you know, especially as an enlisted lower ranking person, you don't make a lot of money. Um, so we would um, hustle. We'd figure out any way to, to make extra cash, whether we were doing security at concerts or uh, working for moving companies. It was just fine in that way. Well, one of my friends. Dixie Licker. That. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking down Georgetown nowadays right there. Yep. <laughs> um, we. Um, he, a friend of mine was working at a funeral home and said, hey, do you, there's an opening. Would you want to have a part-time job to work nights and weekends? And I'm like, at a funeral home? Um, so, you know, my, my, my career thoughts at, at that time of my life was probably going towards, you know, go to college, go to, you know, get my degree and get uh, Secret Service, FBI, something along those lines is what I was wanting to do. And um, so anyway, I started, you know, I started working at this funeral home part-time to you know, wash cars, clean the building, um, and, and pick up people when they died, wherever they died from. Uh, and, and that's how it started. That was 21 years ago. Um, and I can remember my first day on the job, I'm in a suit, the funeral director goes, hey, we need to go, we need to go pick somebody up. They died. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I had no idea what that entailed. And so we, we go to this lady's apartment. She's, I mean, she was elderly and um, she died in her bed she was tiny and I remember he was telling me what to do and we picked her up and we placed her on the stretcher and um, took her out of the apartment and, and brought her into our vehicle and we're, we're driving back to the funeral home and I always I just I couldn't stop thinking about hey there's there's somebody behind me that is deceased it was just it was surreal and that night I went to bed and I had a dream that I did it all over again it was like it was just on repeat you know so the next day at work, they say, "Hey, um, we're gonna we need to go on a removal." And mind you, I'm in a suit again. I'm like, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna go to an old lady's house, um, an elder lady's house. I'm gonna pick her up. I'm gonna put her on the stretcher, and we're gonna take her back." And nothing could have been further from the truth. Um, second day on the job, this person um, was deceased for over a month, and if you can imagine what naturally happens to a human being um, after they die. Um, we were at full stages of decomposition, and I mean, it was um, it was also surreal. So to do this in a suit and to experience what I experienced, and then going back to work and you know doing it again the next day, I was like, if I if I can do that, I, I can do anything you put in front of me. And um, that's kind of how it all started. You know, when I 
Um, they, they, you know, I worked nights and weekends. And then when I got out of the army, they offered me a full-time job um, saying, hey, you know, we'll work around your school schedule. I said, well, I'm going to go to school for, you know, Secret Service, FBI or whatever. Like, that's fine. We need, we need full-time people. And, you know, we want you, we want you to come to work here. And I was like, wow, that's, that's awesome. I needed benefits. Um, obviously, I needed a paycheck. And um, so when I got out of the army, I immediately transitioned into this funeral home. And the, the longer I stayed in the funeral home, the the easier it was for me to transition into what I thought I was going to do for a living and what I was going to do for a living. And what a job, my job quickly became a career. Some people call it a calling. Um, but when you, I think we were talking earlier, you know, in the, in the old guard, when we're doing funerals, especially on the firing party, I mean, gosh, we're, you know, what, hundred yards away from families. So we don't get to see the reactions. You know, we, we know what we're doing, but it doesn't, we're, we're disassociated to the process. Um, but when you're, when you're with a family, when a death has occurred, there's, there's nothing like it. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I can remember going to Arlington National Cemetery, doing a funeral, you know, so my funeral home that I work for, they said, hey, Carrie, you, you're familiar with Arlington. You know where to go. You know how to do it. You're going you're gonna to be the funeral director for this case. Mind you, I, I'm, this is my first month working full-time at a funeral home that I've worked at for the last six months as part-timer. Funeral directors, have, you got to go to school. You got to do all this other stuff to become licensed. But in Virginia, you were allowed to go to cemeteries. So it quickly became evident that any Arlington National Cemetery service, because I knew everybody there, I was going to do those services. So here I am, first month, first service at Arlington National. I'm looking across the parking lot, and it's all of the guys I just served with. You know, heck, you were probably there. And, you know, you, you, and I'm, it was so surreal to me to be the funeral director in a suit standing right next to the family and then watching, you know, the marching platoon. Was that a full honors? It was a full honors. We were at Fort Myer Chapel. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I, I was in, I was in the second marching element, I believe second row carry. And I remember standing there cause we get called to attention when it's time. Um, but I remember we were over in the staging area and I was like, freaking grossies over there. Grossies in a suit. Cause I didn't know your path, but that was, I was definitely there. And I remember it burned in my head that you were not in the element. You were out on the on the civilian side. So it was that. so strange for me, but it was also such a learning experience, you know, so, you know, initially I wanted to kind of go and say hi to y'all and wave and laugh and, you know, Hey, what's up guys. I, um, but I'm sitting next to the family and is, and I'm watching, you know, the case or um, the, the, the uh, casket bearers, they're taking the casket and they're bringing um, the person into Fort Myer Chapel and you guys are all at attention and, and you're, you're saluting the flag and, you know, and the, just looking at these reactions of the family that I never saw from that perspective. And they go inside, of course, the family's now in, in, in the chapel and I go outside and I'm talking to the casket bearers and I'll, I'm chatting with you guys. But right then and there, I'm like, holy cow, what we've done and what I've done hundreds if not thousands of times finally clicked oh my gosh how honorable that was that that family will never forget that experience and what they saw and how they saw it and what honor was bestowed on that fallen veteran and you know I, I couldn't tell you that person's name um, but I can tell you my reaction and my thought and their reaction and thought it was un, it was unbelievable yeah I so for anybody who doesn't understand and I'm, I just wrote down a note that I should probably just do a 
an old guard podcast, a few of us old heads, just to talk about what the standards were when we were in. I think that'd be a really great description. But you have three different elements, actually four different elements in a funeral. You have um, the colors, which is the carrying of, in a full honors funeral, you have the carrying of the American flag and the, the army flag. Um, and they march kind of to their own beat because they have their own special choreographed moves. But then you have the marching element, which is typically two platoon sizes, three ranks of I think six or seven guys. Mm -hmm. um, and it's staged right in front or right by the uh, purse, which then uh, an additional team, which is another platoon of um, six to eight guys, ultimately I think nine with their commander. Mm -hmm. um, they remove the casket, which is covered by an American flag from the hearse and they march it into the chapel and they put it on a, I want to say cart or gurney. Yeah, it'll be on a casket carriage, but by music from the army band too. Oh, I forgot about the army band. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's a massive production for a full honors funeral. And you're right on the, on the participating side and seeing it happen. It is very moving. And the guys that get it the most is the casket team because they hold the flag over the casket right at the funeral while the preacher's talking. And ultimately they have to do the flag folding at the, at the end of it, which I'm getting a little choked up because um, me and Rodney, I'm sorry, me and Kiefer and um, Mertz performed it for Rodney's funeral mm. and it was it was heavy dude I'm gonna I'm talk about that but um but I never respected it enough having to be there for like you said over a thousand uh funerals I know I got I did 1300 um with the simples that I did mm -hmm. uh, which is amazing over four years uh but you're right the the experience is extremely moving it's extremely powerful and then the part the platoon that we were in which was the firing party for the 21 gun salute we are about 50 to 75 meters out and and we we aim to make it the guns really crack with perfect precision and again i think i think an old guard podcast would be really great to talk awesome. about the amount of rehearsal that we do for something that really is so moving so mm -hmm. that's another perfect example of how i interrupt the guest on what they're talking about no i love it man it's like we're going back it's cool yeah so let's let's bring it um Let's bring it back to where we were going. Um, so you became a licensed embalmer and uh, mortician. And I never really pieced together when somebody passes away that a mortician, is that the name shows up? Yeah, it, it's, it just depends on where you're at geographically, how they call it. Maryland, they call them morticians. Texas, okay. we call it funeral director embalmers. But that is who shows up to pick up a body from a scene? Yep. yep. Wow. See, in my mind, it was always handled by some government facility or like the kind of cops or the fire department or the ambulance it's transported that way so okay that's good to know so um let's break into a, a short description a short description we have a guest what is um a short description of how the funeral business operates before something like coronavirus pops up sure um you know, it's it's weird how things have changed, and, and and this is also geographic, right? So in in Washington D.C., which is where I started, um, so going back 20 years ago, you know, your your options are burial or cremation. So families decide, hey, what type of, um, and that's just considered the disposition. But what type of services are you going to have? 
before that is all planned out in the funeral arrangement process. So death occurs, family will come into the funeral home the next day or that day, and we start planning out their funeral. So if you can imagine planning a wedding and everything that's um, entailed in a wedding and how long you do that, well, it's very, very similar, but it all has to happen within two to three days. So a lot of, a lot of logistics are happening, the preparation of the deceased, you know, dressing, casketing, cosmetizing, um, service folders, conducting, you know, coordinating with churches, um, ministers, rabbis. I mean, you figure it's all different cultures and, and, and um, religions and everything like that. When I started, I would say that, you know, maybe 20% max um, of the people we dealt with got cremated. And usually the folks that got cremated had some type of service um, with them. And then the rest of folks got buried. And that meant your traditional visitation or wake, if that's, you know, what you're familiar with, where people would come to the funeral home and view the body, spend time with the family, create that closure, and then the next day would be a service. That, that, was, that was the norm for, you know, the first 10 years or so of my career. Um, as things started progressing, uh, baby boomers started getting up there in years where they're making decisions for their parents. Their thought process on the traditional funeral uh, wasn't the same as their parents where, you know, you'd have the person lying in state, you know, they're in a casket, they're being viewed, it's that somber music and, you know, we're going to play Old Rugged Cross and Amazing Grace and honor the person and do a burial. The baby boomers that are, we're, we're working with now, they, they want it to be more of a, of a celebration. They want to, you know, be a, be a party. There's, there's a lot of different things that we're, we're doing now and it's all based on what we're learning by serving many, many of these families and how we need to adapt quickly um, to what their wants and needs are. And if we don't, it's amazing how quickly they'll go, they're going to go find what they want. Give me an example of what a special, not necessarily off the wall, but give me an example of what a special request you're seeing as a trend that's popping up from the baby boomers planning for their parents. I remember, that I'll never forget, a family came in and we had a rock band come in for the, this was when I was in, so now you got to think about, it. I moved from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore to um, Lubbock, Texas. And I can get into that if you want to, how all that kind of transpired. But so I'm in Lubbock, Texas. So we're in West Texas, Panhandle, very, very traditional. And the family goes, no, we're, we're going to have, a, this is going to be a party and we're going to have a band come in and they're going to play music. Sure enough, man, they had the amps, the guitars, the you name it in our chapel. And all of a sudden, um, one of the songs that they played was Great Balls of Fire. I mean, and it was blaring through our building and the family and the guests and everybody loved it. I mean, they were walking out and you can hear people saying, hey, when I die, y'all need to do something like this. Um, I, I don't want that stuff. I want this. And it was because it was a party. It was, un it was unbelievable. I knew something then. I said, wow, this is pretty that's, uh That's really neat. So you're seeing a transition and that's just kind of industry-wide. And, and to some extent, that it makes sense that it would be changing. And you, you can only imagine as our, as we begin to plan for our parents, because many of us have parents probably in their 70s, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's got to be in the next 25 years. I mean, I imagine how much it, it could change additionally. Um, let me see my notes here so I don't get off track. The um, and, and we, something we didn't talk about was what is your current position just to establish more even more credibility? You're a market director. What does that mean? 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm a market director for Dallas-Fort Worth. And, you know, so Dallas-Fort Worth, I work for a national company called Dignity Memorial. And, um, and I've been working with them for the last 18 years. Um, so I served as a funeral director with them, a funeral home manager, um, general manager. So you kind of move up the ranks. And what a market director is, is the 40 locations that I have across the market. Um, so this is, you just think regionally, all of Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, there's funeral homes, um, there's cemeteries, there's funeral homes on cemeteries and crematories. I'm responsible for the operations of all of those locations. So they're managed by funeral home managers or general managers, depending on the size of those locations. Um, and then they're responsible, they report up to me. And so anything from budgeting, you know, financial performance, um, customer service, um, human resources, anything that's all encompassing of essentially kind of like you being a business owner, you got to kind of manage, you know, what's coming in, what's going out uh, and the people within it and, and how we're, you know, directing folks. That's, that's what I do now, but I still hold my funeral director license. I got you. Okay. So let's talk about the, um, we've kind of discussed how it's beginning to change with how the baby boomers are planning things. Yeah. But, um, you know, I recently got, some podcasts with people who live in New York City because the numbers coming out of that area are kind of they kind of blow my mind alarming and then and then additionally there's been these reports of um unclaimed bodies being just being disposed in a mass burial which I don't the the good-natured person in me doesn't want to believe that sort of thing has happened I kind of want to be um separate from accepting that that's something that has to happen. Have you heard of that sort of thing? Yeah, so let me, first let me put some background to that. In any large metropolitan area in the country, and that, that includes Dallas-Fort Worth too, we'll go pre-COVID, there's always a time where people are unclaimed, always, um, for whatever reason, no relationships, uh, bad relationships, you know, who knows what the reasons are, but um, in those cases, those jurisdictional medical examiner's offices um, hold remains for a period of time, and it all depends on, you know, what their laws and rules are in that jurisdiction. If they are not claimed, um, then one, they'll either go to um, like a school for science purposes, and, and, and they're handled that way. Two, they'll be cremated. Um, and then, you know, I, I've worked for firms where when people were cremated as unclaimed, then we had a space in our cemetery where we would do an annual service for those folks. And whether people showed up or not, it was just one of those community things that we did. Um, our company, for instance, has a homeless veterans um, program. So if there's a, if, if we learn of a homeless veteran that's been unclaimed, um, then we'll work jurisdictionally, we'll prove service, and then we'll work with the um, the national cemetery of that area, and then we'll provide free services to that veteran. Um, and of course, they're they're interred at um, the national cemetery, so those are um, handled there. But if they're if they're ultimately unclaimed, they're either that jurisdiction is either going to bury them or cremate them um, based after a certain period of time. Now, you you take COVID, so New York has been the biggest hit location or um, jurisdiction in our country, uh, and, and the things that are happening there are just unbelievable. From our perspective, if you can imagine tripling the amount of funerals you get overnight, and then, hey, you have to staff that, you have to have the logistics to take care of that. Um, 
families coming in and likely those families are ill as well, there, there starts to become a delay, right? I mean, if you, you know, you, you only have a certain amount of staff. So our company, we've sent over a hundred volunteers and seven of which came from my market, funeral directors and bombers. Those New York funeral directors that are employed, you know, they're part of our company need help. Um, so the, the great thing about my company is we're national. And what we did is um, send, we send people out there and they did two, three week terms of just whether you're meeting with families or whatever. So our firms have been able to accommodate some of those um, challenges that are occurring. But if you go in the, the normal funeral home, if, if you're a normal funeral home, uh, uh, and, and God bless them, if, if they're used to getting, call it three funerals a week, I'm just going to say on average three funerals a week, and now they have 30. Well, three funerals a week, they might have three to four staff members, period. Now, all of a sudden, let's hope they stay healthy. Now you're getting 30 a week. So in a month, you got 120 when you normally have 12. What do you do? Um, and, and how do you do it? So you start, you, you're, you're getting refrigeration trucks, you're getting all that. So what was yesterday unclaimed people, and it, it's three people, three people turn into 12 people, and it just starts to escalate. The cities get, get to a point where they don't have anything they can do. And, and I think I saw that same news coverage that you probably saw. Um, that was likely a cemetery that they um, do burials at for unclaimed bodies anyway. And I don't, and I don't know, I'm, I'm speculating here. So in this case, they had I don't, however many, and they did do the burials that they would have done regardless. It was just at a much larger site picture that uh, isn't normal for the normal American going down the street to see. Um, it, it's sad to see it, but it's unfortunately it's necessary. Well, that kind of reminds me of something I heard about a couple of years ago. It's They were calling it the dead body epidemic in West Virginia, where there's so many um, drug overdoses by people who nobody knows who their family is or where they're from. They had no IDs. So they're ultimately just an un, unknown person that's passed away from drug overdose that they were struggling with policies on how to handle where to keep those bodies additionally. So I guess it's kind of the same thing. It got sensationalized through that New York um, report, I guess. Um, so that's really good perspective. And it, and it is hard to imagine if you have three funerals, if you're used to the volume of three and your staff for three, and you probably have the resources for six. You could handle a bump and up to oh, six, yeah. seven, eight, you know, or even more. But then to have that go, um, to have go six grow five times, then it really becomes a production and issue. And I, I, I can't imagine that, but everybody's dealing with the same sort of, economic beatdown and not just when it comes to money but just production I'm, I'm seeing the same thing in my business too um but it's you know you mentioned people families coming in bro families shouldn't be going anywhere and i mean i be, i imagine it's a phone call to a funeral home rather than um the whole family going in and organizing it how how are you adjusting that way let, let me try to put it in the perspective our industry as a whole is very, very slow to advance technologically. Um, our company, we're very fortunate because we're a large company. We have resources that you got to think the, the, the regular privately owned funeral home, they don't, they don't have the same resources. So I'll, I'll just put it into perspective here for a second. Um, my mom died uh, five years ago here in October. 
And the funeral home that we use locally in, in my hometown, um, so I partnered up with our company, but we also use the funeral home that my mom has used, you know, that's just the way it was. And they're not, they're not a part of our company. And our, we do things with technology, we create movies and, you know, slideshows and all those other things. So I said, hey, I want to make sure that we play my mother's slideshow at the funeral home. We don't do that here. And it wasn't that he didn't want to do it. They didn't have the resources to understand how to do it. They were still using a typewriter to print up, you know, prayer cards, if you will. Whereas us, we're, everything's digitized, everything's on the computer and all that other stuff. So that doesn't mean they're that we're better than them or they're it's just it's different so us evolving with technology but what i have seen at least i can only speak to what our company has done the immediate i mean when i say immediate in the beginning of covid you know we were we were having calls and webexes on you know how are we evolving how do we help families if somebody if somebody that we're handling services of is positive covid then their families cannot come in our building for our, our associates protection, how are we going to make arrangements with those families? Immediately, we went to Zoom, WebEx, um, Facebook Live, uh, you know, any, anything you can do. But remember, yesterday, that wasn't needed or necessary, so we didn't do it. The, the technological advances that we made overnight, and I mean, within a month's time, we're doing Facebook Live services, whether it's in a chapel, whether it's at another um, location, um, graveside services. So we immediately we're buying equipment, microphones. I mean, overnight we're going through all of this. So you got to thank God for you know things being able to get shipped to you so quickly. Um, and and now you got to train. We got 24,000 employees. So we have a sales staff, we have a funeral director staff, we have managers. We all needed to learn how to do these, use these platforms professionally with a family. But take you got the, the most in-depth thing is, is and, and we want to still continue with this technology, but think about connection with people. Um, you know, when, when, when you're meeting with a family to make a funeral arrangement, somebody they love and hold dear to them, the, the, the most important person in their life is now dead. They come into my funeral home. Let's just say I was the funeral director or somebody else. And it is my job now to honor that person but I have to build an immediate relationship with that family. I have, to, I have to build their trust. They have to understand that I'm gonna take care of them and I'm gonna help them through this difficult process that they have no idea what those waters are, right? Now I'm doing it on a Zoom. I'm looking at you on a camera. They're looking at me on a camera. If I didn't know you, how are we able to, how are we learning how to build that relationship? So yes, we have immediately been able to do that, but now the next fold is, is how do we learn how to build those relationships? And it's very, very difficult to do that. Mind you, the person that they just lost, they couldn't see him die. They couldn't even be with them because they were positive. Now the likelihood is they can't see them in my funeral home because they're positive and the continued infection, I mean, and, and the unknown and all the things that are happening. So we, I mean, right now it's just so, you hear the word unprecedented all the time, but in our culture, the vast majority of the people that deal with grieving and, and death, it's important for us to be able to have that closure, you know, to be able to look at that person, say a prayer, spiritual, say goodbye, whatever is important to you. And we've taken that back from people. And um, to do that virtually, which we do, you know, we'll take the, 
you know, we'll, we'll be on a secured Zoom or Facebook Live or whatever it is with that person, with that immediate family and go right up to the casket so that they can see their loved one, but they're doing it on a camera. Um, so it's, it's different, man. It's really different. Um, but the immediate involvement in that has been pretty, pretty impressive. Off mute. Well, the, um, I think that's kind of a twofold situation where, yeah, I mean, it's gotta be heartbreaking. And like I said, we're getting ready to go down this path. My aunt passed away and stepfather and my wife's uncle. Um, they have to figure out how to put together these celebrations of life or these funeral arrangements and how they're going to go. But the, um, we can't always get to a distant funeral. So if there's one, if there's one in South Carolina, we may not be able to get to. There's one in Florida. If it, if it doesn't fit with everyday operations and how it's going to go, it would be delightful to be able to sit on a live stream to see it happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can imagine from a business point of view on your end, all of a sudden you're going from being funeral directors to being media content producers. That's mm-hmm. That's got to be really freaky as well. But you can imagine that this coronavirus journey that we're on is going to drastically change how a lot of business is done. And it sounds like your business is on the forefront for your industry for how to keep not only the ball rolling, but how to also create those um, connections. And I believe if people realize that Zoom or WebEx is their only way of accomplishing creating a relationship with you it will be okay because this is just the medium that's there yeah it's it's amazing to see how it works so so of course for the most part um overwhelmingly people are understanding right so what you just said you're taking a funeral director who has never uh, heck i'll give you for instance i don't do webex meetings because our group is in one place so we always get our managers together where I'm, I'm either at their locations or whatever. And I can remember a month ago, I had to do my first WebEx video and all this other stuff and nothing I've ever done before. So prior to, I'm practicing with my assistant and I'm going back and forth and, hey, what's this? And I'm pulling documents up and I'm looking like a goofball as we're training. But um, and that's just as a meeting. So now you take it into context where now I've got to be perfect. I always equate a funeral to the world series right it's the last game of the series it's it's the bottom of the ninth it's a full count and 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 the pitch is coming and the bases are loaded you have to hit a grand slam if you don't hit a grand slam then that family's going to remember you forever in not a positive way you know it's it's not like we're dealing with groceries it's not like we're dealing with the ritz carlton where you go to a hotel it's beautiful you expect high service levels because of the cost um, you're, you're dealing with somebody's loved one and yes, it's expensive, you know, so there, everybody's talking about funeral costs. So if, if we make a mistake, our mistake is this big. I mean, it's, it's just tenfold because emotions are involved. So we're doing our darndest to learn as much as possible. And so what I see happening is, is we've evolved immediately, almost within two weeks, we are doing multiple Facebook live services and at every step of the way, they're getting better and better. And we find new apps that you can you can build onto that Facebook Live that creates a video montage of the person as they're doing it. So what I, I, I foresee the industry, and if we don't do this, and if somebody chooses not to do this, then they're going to be left in the dust, right? I mean, sometimes things, are, things force you into evolving. 
that it, I foresee more, more professional productions that we physically are able to do or, or we hire people that have the technology, that that's what they do for a living, right? They're producers or whatever. And it turns into something like that. That's what I foresee happening. Well, this has been all very good uh, information for sure, man. And, and I guess you have to keep doing the funerals. You have to find a way, otherwise the amount of customers will start, the backlog will be really, really hard to rebound from. And then, you know, right now, West Virginia is toying with the idea of letting people back out of their houses or whatever, but still it, you, it's, you have to be in groups of less than 25. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just imagine that the, these are all really difficult obstacles, but if you're able to evolve, like you were saying, that's, that's how you're going to be able to keep ahead of the tempo, but additionally keep ahead of, of, I don't know. I, I, I keep folding back to this idea that because you serve in the old guard and a funeral director has to be so empathetic, if that's the right word to mm -hmm. how, how people are feeling when they're coming in and the, and the, the sheer, um, the sadness that's there. Um, I, I have to believe that you're experiencing the old guard and showing the goal to show everybody full honors, every customer you have, the full honors kind of model of attention to de uh, detail and sincerity. I believe, especially with younger generations, the ability to produce it where you can't be there and to be able to see it on a screen, I think that will carry a lot more value than someone like you and I would think would it would carry because we're used to being on site, being right there at the funeral. So I, I think it would actually be a good path. It's, it's it's hard to comprehend, but so is everything, and everybody's being forced to change, even at the end of life. Well, and I think that's what's helpful in this environment is your last statement. Everybody's being forced to change. It's not like we are trying to be some, you know. Hey, we're going to try this crazy new thing, right? We're going to, we're going to do virtual services. And if you asked me that a year ago, we would have said, no, 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 we're not doing that. We've done webcasting where the camera was there, but the platforms were never available for mass amounts of people. But when you have the Zooms and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and all, when, when the vast majority of the people are already on platforms, that's what makes it more easier to do. Now, remember what you just said too, though, is, you know, even our generation compared to the new generation coming in, in, in our industry or any of those for that matter, there are very, very talented individuals when it comes to using social media and um, any kind of media, computers, things like that, but you still have to have that connection. And uh, we just need to make sure, how do we balance the two? And the other balance is, is, I've got a lot of infrastructure out there, right? I've got funeral homes that traditionally people come into. Um, it's called a funeral home for a reason because they used to be homes where people live. And if we rely more heavily on virtual and less heavily on funeral homes, well, all of a sudden our need isn't as great. And I mean, so you have we have to figure out what that balance is. And I don't think we're there yet, um, but it's something that's in the back of my mind that we ha we just have to make sure that we embrace virtual services, virtual arrangements, making sure we can meet with people in their comfort level, um, but also inviting and opening our doors to say, hey, we are creating a safe environment for you. It's clean. It's, we're going to make sure that we practice social distancing. And every jurisdiction is different. Today, Dallas opened up all of, you know, to a degree, right? Um, any, you can go to church Sunday. 
And as long as they're doing, you know, six feet apart, I mean, if this church holds a thousand people, you can have 500 people in there. Um, so will that change things? I don't know. Um, how we do those things, uh, we're, we're working with it every day and moving with the changes that come with it. I imagine we, the business owners or whoever's in charge of whatever project they're in charge of, I imagine we will figure out a way to fix this and a way to move forward right as things begin to lighten up. But I believe those efficiencies you were talking about, um, we will find those efficiencies and they'll carry through. Like mm -hmm. there'll be more opportunities to have virtual if you have the right production people on staff or mm -hmm. hired. You know, you'll have the, I'll have the ability to, I, I don't know, it, it's like I was saying, I'm, I'm starting to predict the end of when the quarantine will be, but really I'm adjusting my businesses for how to accelerate um, in the future and how all the approaches will be different no matter what and how much it's changed us. I'm trying to predict what that future will look like. Well, you think about, you know, so you have an immediate family member that dies. Obviously, you're going to go through thick and thin to get to that funeral, whether it's in Florida, like you talked about, California. That doesn't, I mean, you're immediately getting on an airplane, driving, whatever you're going to do. But then think about your distance. I mean, are we talking about a cousin or, a, or an uncle or what, whatever it might be? And, you know, you're working, life is busy, families. I can't get away. I can't get vacation. But if we're still able to provide services for those immediate people that come in the door and are always going to come in the door. How great would it be for you? Hey, I got to work, but you know what? I'm going to take an hour break and be able to view this funeral um, because this person was important to me and, and it's going to provide closure for me. I think, I think that's what I see happening. We're still going to have the folks walking in the door, but to be able to provide that additional service that's going to be easily accessible. Um, and, and I, I think that's, that's, that's our future. Um, it truly is, in my opinion. Terry, that's great. And um, I, I think I've, I've really learned a lot on this. Thank you for breaking it down. Uh, my notes don't have anything else. Is, is there anything you can think we missed? I don't think so, brother, man. It's been awesome just seeing you and catching up with you. And, um, you know, I just wish you and your family the best during these times too, and, and be safe out there along with everybody else, man. We're, we're all just trying to figure this out. Same to you, Carrie, and um, I will be sure to include you, and I'll actually ask you who you think we should have on, but I think we should do a, um, an Old Guard podcast to talk about um, what it was like. So, um, That'd be fun, man. That'd be fun. I'll let you know when it comes up, and, and we may even do multiple series. That way we can have different platoons on and different uh, disciplines on. So, all right, great. Well, let's wrap it up. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you, bud. This podcast is brought to you by City National Bank in Ransom, West Virginia. I am Melissa Knott and manage both of our Jefferson County locations. Our Charlestown location is located on George Street in Charlestown and the Ransom location is located in the Potomac Marketplace Shopping Center. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. We offer a range of free checking accounts and savings products for both consumer and business customers. City National Bank offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for both business and personal needs. Come and talk to me or one of my team members and get products and services that are tailored to fit your schedule and help you to achieve your financial goals. I can be reached at both the Ranson and Charlestown locations. Check out our website at www.bankatcity.com. Today's intro song is called Mean in a Good Way. It's written and performed by P. 
Peter Clark off of his album, Peter Clark After Dark. Peter, <laughs> Peter describes this song as being the best song to learn hula hooping to. Peter is an avid hooper and recently started a hula hoop repair business. If you ever need hula hoop repair, consider contacting Peter. You can reach him on SoundCloud. Just search Peter Clark After Dark.